um, the idea of uh, Raven Radio anchoring your morning and the engine that keeps chugging along. I'm going to use that one <coughs> too, Lauren. That's, uh, I would say the engine uh, and the horsepower are coming mainly from Catherine Rose and from Aaron McKinstry, our Report for America reporter. This year, um, you're going to get to hear some of that engine coming up now um, with Aaron Fulton. The number to call is 747-5877 or pledge online at kcaw.org. Join Kari, uh, join uh, Jim and Judy Steffen, join Cheryl and David Vastola, join Jackie this morning, all of whom, join Tori, all of whom have helped us, uh, join Lauren and Dane. And uh, now Mike, uh, who likes Happy Hour, Sitka Sports, and local news. Thank you so much, Mike. That's seven, three more calls to get our $500 true value match this morning. That's kcaw.org or uh, give us a call, 747-5877. Join all these folks in uh, helping sort of create the world you'd like to live in, help create the community you'd like to live in that has a vital and healthy community radio station. It's our winter fun drive. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. So Um, do it now. When you're listening is the best time to do it. We're going to go next to Aaron Fulton with local news. Thanks so much, everybody. It is 11 minutes before 8 o'clock. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, December 7th, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. The massive storm that brought down the landslide in Haines on December 2nd had not abated when an Air Station Sitka helicopter launched en route to search for victims. The specialized equipment on the helicopter and the people flying it were both put to the test during the mission. KCAW's Robert Woolsey spoke with the air crew's commander. You guys are nothing short of amazing. You're You're just a great job. Great job pitching. Holy smokes. I love it. Commander of the backup crew on the day of the storm, but the air station's primary crew had already flown two medevac missions in other parts of the region. When the call came in shortly after 2 p.m., that disaster had struck in Haines. Despite the forecast of severe turbulence, Commander Breckel and his crew launched in the fading daylight to perform the kind of work that the Coast Guard specializes in. You know, our capabilities on the helicopter were uh, that they were looking for was our uh, our forward-looking forward-looking infrared uh, camera. So we were looking for the heat signatures of potentially anybody in the slide area. Um, so we pretty much came into a hover there. Um, we had a nice like 40-knot headwind. Uh, to do that, and then um, we searched that uh, that area for a good hour or so, um, and then did uh, shoreline searches. Also, looking through the debris that was out in the water, quite, quite a lot of you know logs floating in the area. Obviously, um, you know those were all a danger to the to the surface boats that were were in the area. And then um, you know in in those logs where you could see pieces of uh, of houses, um, just not very big ones. Um, you know, things we saw, I saw like a mattress um, and just a lot of wood uh, mixed in with that. After this initial shoreline search, Breckel's crew started a search pattern over the water, but they ran into difficulty right away. We only got a few minutes into that uh, before the, the weather really started coming down on us. We had heavy rain and um, weren't operating in a mile-wide channel there, and we had less than a half-mile visibility, so we couldn't even see the other side, trying to make um, 
turns and 40 knots of wind. So pretty challenging at that point. And uh, so at that point, we secured um, from the search that night for due to um, the risk of operating in that area. Even with night vision goggles, Breckel says, the pilots could not see the horizon. They flew to Juneau for the night and returned the next morning with two members of the Klingit and Haida Emergency Operations Command, who they dropped off at the Haines Airport. Then it was back to flying the search pattern. And this was the first good look you had at the slide in daylight on Thursday. So we probably had like 20 minutes of like dwindling twilight on, on Wednesday. But yeah, for us to get a really good look at the slide, that, that was our first good chance. Yeah. What's your assessment of the slide? It, it looks pretty big from the pictures. I'm used to seeing, you know, some of the smaller slides around here in the Sika area. And that is by far the biggest slide I've ever seen. Definitely, um, I, I put it at 600 feet wide at the bottom. And then it, it went up to a probably started about an elevation about 500, 600 feet. So there was a lot of land that came down. Breckel is confident that had anyone been alive in the water, the helicopter's infrared camera would have detected them. The helicopter returned to Air Station Sitka Thursday evening after having spent nine hours airborne in the search effort in Haines. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Alaska is expected to receive its first supply of coronavirus vaccinations sometime within the next two weeks. That's according to Search Chief Medical Officer Dr. Elliot Brule, who shared an update at the Sitka Unified Command meeting on Wednesday. Anticipating uh, approximately 34,000 doses of vaccine coming to the state of Alaska at some point in the next um, two weeks. Um, that vaccine will be composed of um, both the vaccine from Pfizer and the vaccine from uh, Moderna in approximately equal amounts. It's not yet clear how many doses will be directed to Sitka. Both Search and the city are working on their prioritization plans for who will receive the vaccine first. It's a little more complicated than getting an annual influenza vaccination. The coronavirus vaccines are licensed for emergency use, which means there are strict reporting requirements for hospitals that must hospitals must follow as patients are vaccinated in order to track any potential side effects. But so far, Brule said medical literature indicates most of those side effects would be mild. Common side effects are um, a sore arm and a low-grade temperature and a mild headache. We're excited about the um, arrival of the vaccine because this um, obviously is the beginning um, of a, the end of the pandemic. Even with the vaccine's arrival in Alaska on the horizon, it will likely take several more months before it's fully available to the general public. With that in mind, City Administrator John Leach called for Sitkins to wear masks and continue social distancing throughout the holidays. Unfortunately, this is the year that some traditions need to be paused or modified. We encourage you to celebrate the holidays with only those who live in your household and limit travel as much as possible. Please be aware of how this virus can spread rapidly within group settings and understand the potential impacts of visiting friends, neighbors, and family. Once we are on the other side of this pandemic, we will be thankful for the hard choices we made this year. Sitka health officials reported five coronavirus cases over the weekend. One case was reported on Saturday. The patient is a woman in her 30s. She was experiencing symptoms when she was tested on December 3rd, according to city data. 
The other four cases were reported on Sunday. The patients range in age from a young child to a woman in her 60s. At press time, information about their symptoms or how they contracted the virus was not yet available on the city's COVID dashboard. As of Sunday evening, Sitka had reported 228 cases since the beginning of the pandemic. 17 of those were considered active, according to city data. More than half of the overall cases were reported in the last month. The federal government has finalized an agreement with a Colorado mining company to permanently seal a former uranium mine in southeast Alaska's Tongass National Forest. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports. The Cold War-era Ross Adams mine hasn't produced uranium for nearly 50 years. But state regulators have been working to have the radioactive site on Prince of Wales Island cleaned up since the 1990s. This fall, the U.S. Forest Service finalized a plan for the Colorado-based Newmont Corporation to seal the former mine with concrete and haul away abandoned buildings. That's after state agencies and conservationists weighed in over the summer on the Forest Service's proposed agreement. The federal agency says it appreciated the input, then marked the draft plan final. There were no changes necessary to the agreement. Linda Riddle is the federal agency's coordinator for the project, she says the Forest Service isn't legally bound to coordinate with other agencies since the mine is completely within national forest land. But I am giving them the opportunity to follow the project along and, and provide us comments um, if they have any. But it, it's more of um, an informal approach. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation has been aware of the contaminated site near Kendrick Bay since 1999. In comments to the Forest Service, it urged the agency to adopt the EPA's five-year monitoring standard. But under the agreement signed between the former operators and federal government, the site will be monitored by the company for only three years. After that, all responsibility will shift to the Forest Service. In a statement, DEC says it's too early to tell how long the radioactive site will need to be monitored. That'll be clearer after the work has concluded. Still, conservationists have criticized the Forest Service's go-it-alone approach to cleaning up the site. Sally Slichting of the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council says state and federal environmental regulators are better equipped than the Forest Service to address the complexities of reclaiming a former uranium mine developed in the 1950s. Certainly the state should have oversight on contaminated site cleanup work that happens here in the state of Alaska. And uh, EPA has expertise in this area. And we would just feel more comfortable if those environmental agencies were having active oversight on this project. The EPA indicated as recently as 2018 it should be more involved. But more recently, it's deferred to the Forest Service's authority, but indicated it can still intervene if necessary. The Forest Service's riddle says that will be the understanding between the two agencies going forward. EPA doesn't normally get heavily involved in reviewing a document uh, for a removal action. Now, if something comes to their attention that um, some concerns that we are not addressing, then, you know, then, they, then they might get involved. The cleanup plan will likely require a permit from Alaska's Department of Natural Resources to access state-owned tidelands.